Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, Karen Nettles from the Homeport Crew is going to join me again, and we're going to talk a lot about the advocacy efforts that AGLCA undertakes on behalf of our members. Um, this is our fundraising time of the year for our advocacy fund, so we'll talk a little bit about why all of that matters. But before we jump into that, let's take a moment to recognize and to thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes & Associates, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners and viewers to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And with the business out of the way, Karen, thanks again for joining me. Um, it's great to have you back. Oh, glad to be here. Always glad to be able to get out there, talk with you, and let the members know what's going on and what, how we can educate them on a lot of things. And I know advocacy is a very big thing that, that we do every year, and it's ongoing. It is. And, um, you know, it's, this is the time of the year. A lot of the state legislatures are in session, which is what drives a lot of the laws that, you know, may or may not be friendly to cruising style boaters like loopers. So um, that's why this is the time of year we do the fundraising. It's when we have a little bit of a better idea of what to expect and things are already happening. So shall we just jump right in then? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So uh, what are our advocacy efforts most active right now? Where are these most active? So probably not surprisingly to anyone who has followed these efforts before, um, Florida is active right now, as is New York. And New York has been, you know, one of the more active states for the last few years. Most of the things happening there surround the Erie Canal and the other New York State canals. Um, So that is kind of heating up for this year, especially as we look towards the season opening on the canals. And Florida, um, you know, the anchoring issue remains front and center there. We made a lot of progress last year, um, but there's still work to be done in Florida. We do monitor all of the states along the Great Loop so we can see what is being filed at the state level um, in each of those states so that if bills are filed that could be positive or negative for loopers, we can get engaged in the process and be sure that we are making our voices heard. Okay, well, it's good to know that it's not just the the two main states that we seem to see a lot of bills and proposed legislation, but we're focusing on the whole route and so forth. But since Florida Florida is such a big uh, hotbed, why don't we start there and first start with, uh, you know, the background with Florida? Yeah, because there is a lengthy background at this point in what's been going on related to anchoring in Florida. Um, started several years ago with what I like to call the anchoring wars, where there were some, um, probably what you could define as a nuisance vessel, even though that's not really a thing, but, um, you know, a vessel that was clearly not a looper, making lots of noise, loud music, lots of lights, and just continuously anchored in front of a wealthy, influential homeowner's home in Florida. And that's kind of the first time I remember there being this engagement about that. Um, And that particular homeowner, like I said, was very influential, had lots of friends in high places, um, and got into this battle with a few boaters who were just perennially kind of just anchoring outside his home. Um, And there started to be this call to ban anchoring in lots of areas in Florida. Um, The boating community was, that was the first time the difference 
membership organizations that are now a coalition on these issues came together and, and really commented and said, you know, this is an outlier on this boat. Um, the waterways are not owned by the people who owned the land side property. Um, so we pushed back on that. It was several years, year after year at the, the state house in Florida that this battle was going on. And I want to say it's, it's probably getting seven, eight, maybe a few more than that years ago. Um, you know, we had beaten back all of the bills and, and the boating community um, seemed to think, you know, we had done our job and I wasn't directly involved in this point at this point, which is a little bit why I'm fuzzy remembering the time frame. Um, but the next season, we did not engage a lobbyist in Florida. And that very next legislative year, a bill was passed and signed into law that banned overnight anchoring in four specific anchorages in the Miami and Fort Lauderdale area. And those are all very well marked on your navigation software. Um, but there are four anchorages we lost that year because we were not represented at the state house. Um, so of course, everyone got back together um, and, and continued to fight the fight, so to speak. Currently, I think a lot of what's happening in Florida and many other states is that cruisers who responsibly anchor are getting caught up in the battle over derelict vessels. Um, there are lots of derelict vessels on our waterways, and anybody has, who has cruised through Florida, it's very easy to see that problem. It's a combination of um, boats that have been storm damaged and, um, you know, basically went adrift in the storm and have not been reclaimed. Um, you know, boats that are just kind of abandoned and left to sink. Those are taking up legitimate spaces for cruisers in anchorages. And, you know, they are unsightly um, and they create a danger to navigation. So we agree that there needs to be something done with derelict vessels. But a derelict vessel is very different than a vessel that's just simply at anchor, that somebody perhaps doesn't want a boat in their view from their landside home. So we've really been working hard to make that distinction in Florida and elsewhere. And I think for legislators who perhaps are not boaters, they don't immediately understand the difference. And once it's explained to them, they do kind of see that, okay, yes, we don't need to ban anchoring in order to solve this problem of these unsightly and dangerous boats. There's another way to go about it. So we've made a lot of progress. Our goal for the last couple of years has been to get some kind of legislation in place that would stop this year after year effort at the state house where we're constantly trying to beat back um, different municipalities trying to add anchorages to the, that list of four. Once those four in the Miami area were closed to overnight anchoring, it became pretty simple, a very short, you know, less than a page for a bill to say, and I would like to be point E in that for my anchorage in my town. Um, so that took a lot of effort. And, and we have a very effective lobbyist who has been successful in preventing us from losing additional anchorages to overnight anchoring. Um, but what we really wanted was a solution to that overall problem where it was just too easy for towns and municipalities to be added to that list. And 2021 was a pretty successful year in that. Um, and we achieved what I think is a great compromise. Um, that particular section of the code um, basically grandfathered those four anchorages in and thereby making it harder for others to add their names, you know, their, their areas to that list of four. And instead, set up a process for those communities to create anchoring limitation areas instead of anchoring restriction areas. An anchoring limitation area is a place where boaters can anchor for up to 45 days. 
So it's very similar to what we worked on in Georgia a couple of years ago, and it's really a good compromise. Um, it helps law enforcement to have some teeth to do something about the derelict vessels um, because a derelict or abandoned vessel is not going to move after 45 days. It's just been abandoned or is sitting there or perhaps doesn't have the capability to move. Um, and on the other side of that equation, a municipality or local government, um, in order to designate an anchoring limitation area, has to go to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation um, Commission to request that. There are you know, plenty of uh, measures that they have to meet. They cannot designate more than 10% of their navigable water as an anchoring limitation area. And the maximum size for any one anchoring limitation area is 100 acres. So, you know, to me, great compromise, still something we have to be um, vigilant about uh, anytime, you know, the legislator is in session, there's always the possibility that something could be filed and changed. Um, but that's what happened. You know, that's kind of the background. And we closed out 2021 with a compromise that I think works very well for cruisers because most loopers who is, you know, really who we're doing this for is our members, and they're not going to stay at anchor in one place for more than 45 days. So, um, and, and that 45 days only applies inside anchoring limitation areas. And to my knowledge so far, none have been set up. It's a process to go through with FWC, which we also monitor, um, but we would not likely fight against an anchoring limitation area being set up anywhere in Florida, because again, all that means to our members is they can't stay there for more than 45 days, which is highly unlikely anyway. So that, that's kind of the background for Florida. Well, you've given us a good overview over the last few years. So can you tell us what's happening this year? Yeah, so there's a couple things we've been watching in Florida this year. And as we had hoped, it is a quieter year than past years. Um, I think last year's legislation really helped on that front. However, um, there are a couple of things we're watching. A change was just this week proposed to that statute that was put in place last year, the one I just described for the anchoring limitation areas. Um, the change that is being proposed, um, it, it originally was set up so that it, you could not anchor for more than 45 consecutive days in an anchoring limitation area. The basic premise of the uh, modification would be to remove that word consecutive. So uh, because we have a lobbyist in Florida, we've got representation there. His role is to go uh, find out, you know, kind of what's driving that and what's the reason for changing that to remove the word consecutive and to really find out what the, the sponsors of that amendment are trying to accomplish. So we're still in that fact finding phase on that amendment. And once we know more, we'll certainly update our membership. Um, it may be inconsequential for members. Um, essentially, it means that, you know, without the word consecutive in there, it means that even non-consecutive days, the maximum, um, and I should have mentioned it's 45 consecutive days in a six-month period. I left that six-month thing out, I think. So without the consecutive, it's any 45 days, cons consecutive or non-consecutive in a six-month period. Um, we're Like I said, we're still analyzing the impact of that, but for our members, we really still think that's probably inconsequential. Um, even if they're cruising in one direction and back the other direction within the same six-month period, it's still highly unlikely that they would be in that same anchoring limitation area for more than 45 days. You know, that would mean right. they stayed for 22 um, in each direction, highly unlikely. And again, an anchoring limitation area can only be 10% of any municipality's waterways. 
So even if there's a limit anchoring limitation area, they can't stop in because they've exceeded the 45 days, there should be other options for anchorages or docks. So that's, um, like I said, just came up this week, kind of perked our ears up and said, okay, let's, now it's time to focus on this. The other thing, just to update everyone who's listening to this, part of last year's bill, um, Monroe County is the Florida Keys. It's actually where I am now. I wish I could show you some pictures of the beautiful scenery here, but um, the Florida Keys are kind of their own unique ecosystem. And it's one of the few areas by Florida law that, that can be considered different than the rest of the state. Uh, they also have a lot of workforce housing that lives aboard in on anchorages. You know, that's uh, particularly in Key West. Um, a lot of the people who uh, live and work there can't really afford the housing there. So many live at anchor on their boats. Uh, and there's been, because of that, the anchoring limitation area, the 45-day limit was problematic in Monroe County. And the solution to that was that that part of the bill cannot take effect in Monroe County until 300 mooring balls have been installed. And the idea there is that is to give those, that workforce that's living at anchor an alternative, and that's to put the boat on a mooring ball. There have been efforts, there was a lot of pushback about that uh, locally in the Keys uh, by some developers who seem to be driving the idea that the anchorages should be cleared out. And this year it came back, they're trying to reduce the number of mooring balls that need to be in place before they can implement the anchoring limitation areas. And the studies show it's really what they're trying to reduce it to, I believe it's 100 or 150, is really not enough just for the boats that are workforce housing. It's not our core issue at AGLCA. It really doesn't affect our members. However, as you know, human beings, we do not like to see people displaced. Um, so we're not actively working on that. Uh, but we have put out some alerts to our members for people who do have some concerns about that so that they can reach out right to the powers that be, the legislators sponsoring the bill and things like that. So you may see more of those coming. But our lobbyist in Florida is not actively working that issue because, again, it's not a cruiser's issue. It's very much a local issue. But we do think mm -hmm. it's something that our members would like to know about. So we're keeping you updated about that. Okay. Um, but there is some good news on the derelict vessel front, correct? So why don't you tell us about that? Yes. So um, there is a bill that has been passed, I believe, by um, both houses in Florida now that would give a lot of funding for the removal of derelict vessels. So that's also a really big plus for cruisers from two angles. One, if we can clear up the de derelict vessel issue, it helps with the optics of the anchoring issue. Nobody, uh, people would cease to see boats at anchor as a potential derelict vessel if we can clean up the ones that truly are derelict and abandoned. Um, and second, there are laws against that right now, but the biggest enforcement issue is that it's very expensive to get rid of a boat that has been abandoned on the waterway. Sometimes the owner can't be found. Um, sometimes the owner you know, is uninsured or you can try to get the money to pay for the removal from the owner. But if they don't have the money, it's, it's, it's one of those things that there's, it's, there's no easy solution. So the state of Florida is working on a law that would fund the removal of derelict vessels and basically reimburse the municipalities and counties for the vessels that have been removed. So I will post a link to that article in um, the comments for both the podcast version and the YouTube version. So anyone who's interested in that can take a look at what's going on there. That was a good overview for Florida and what's currently going on. So why don't we move to New York and you give us a background there? 
Yeah, New York is a very dish, different issue. It's not an anchoring issue at, at all. Several years ago, the management of the New York State Canal System was transitioned to the New York Power Authority, also known as NIPA. And it started off as a pretty rocky relationship between NIPA and the Canal Corporation and, and the actual users of the waterway. Uh, I think they kind of ended up with this asset that they really didn't understand what a treasure was there. And since NIPA took over, the operating season for the canals has been shortened repeatedly, which has, you know, it, it's obviously caused some eyebrows to raise. You know, why is it shorter? It's also been a struggle for the businesses along the canals that, you know, support these towns that really have dwindled over the years. The Erie Canal was once a, a very much a working waterway and those towns built up along its banks to serve the commercial boats that were going past and, and that's not how it works anymore. So a shortened season affects all of the merchants in those small towns and it affects especially the tour boat operators of which there are many on the Erie Canal. It affects the marinas. Uh, it affects any of those waterside businesses. So while we completely understand the need for NIPA to have a long enough closure to do the needed maintenance, um, they do that maintenance during the winter and sometimes some of that has to wait towards spring because of the freezing temperatures. So we fully understand the need to do the maintenance and the need for there to be a long enough maintenance window. Uh, but we are advocating to balance that with the needs of boaters and those waterside communities. The opening date for this year is May 20th. So for 2022, it's May 20th. It's generally for the last several years been the Friday before Memorial Day weekend. So a full weekend before Memorial Day, the canals are open. Um, most of you might say, well, that's plenty of time. Loopers typically don't get there till closer to June. And it is, uh, but I do want to kind of remind everybody that if there's not a long enough operating season for marinas there to be viable or for mechanics there to be viable, then those services are no longer available to loopers. So that's why it matters, even though loopers don't typically get there till a little bit later in the season. So that's been the history, at least on the operating dates. It's also been shortened on the fall side. So typically it's been closing in mid-October. Uh, back, you know, many years ago, it closed later in October. So the, uh, the local communities, they're really pushing to go back to a longer, longer operating season for the canals. Also, a few years ago under Governor Cuomo, there was a whole reimagining the Erie Canals initiative that took place. And there were focus groups and studies and lots of consultants. And on all of these committees and subcommittees, there was the, the cruiser community, the power boating community was not really well represented in the people who were appointed to these committees. I think there were one or two, one of which was an AGLCA sponsor who served on these committees. And it seemed that everything coming out of the reimagining process was focused on things happening on the banks of the river and canal way, which is important, but also was focusing on paddle sports on the waterways, which were lovely, <laughs> and also focusing on uh, some things that were worrisome to through boaters, through meaning using the entire canal to get from one waterway to another waterway. Um, things like returning the canal to some, in some places to its natural depth. Over the years, they have been deep and there have been dams. Um, and now there's some flooding happening. And as we all know that human intervention 
on things like waterways and ecology can have a severe impact. But as they were talking about restoring natural depths in some areas that may not make the Erie Canal passable for boats the size of many looper boats. So nothing has moved forward with that, but obviously it's something we are monitoring and we need to continue to monitor. So we're very engaged there with different local groups. We've also gotten assurances and I've spoken with a board member of NIPA. They have no intention of closing the canal. They're telling us that they intend to maintain the canal for through navigation, which is really the key for us. Um, just because you can get a power boat from one lock to another lock doesn't mean that it's viable for loopers to use it as part of the loop. So the through navigation is really what's key for our group. So we've been making that known. Uh, NIPA, as I said, has assured that that is in their plan. And to be fair to NIPA, uh, the canal will once again be free of charges this year. And it is extremely expensive to maintain the New York State canals. So it is a big drain on resources for NIPA with very little coming back to them in return. So when you look at the financial side of it, it doesn't work. And that's another one of our concerns is that at some point, that financial issue could really start to become a much bigger issue. So we'll continue to monitor that and be active in that area. Um, we did put out an alert to our members in the last month or so for some letter writing to support the extended boating season. And that in effect was to support the businesses and towns along the Erie Canal that are so important to the loop. Right. So what's the current status of the canals in 2022? Um, as I said, the opening date is May 20th. The only place that there is a potential issue that kind of also another one that just made us kind of stop and our ears perked up a little is uh, there have been some calls by an environmentalist group to keep one of the locks on the Champlain Canal closed. And the reason they are calling for that is because of a migrating invasive species. That species is known as the round goby, and it apparently was detected in the Hudson River in the recent past. And the idea there is to not open one of the locks and therefore um, go ahead and prevent that species from migrating because they don't have to open the lock. So the call to close the lock, not open it to boating traffic, is not the first time we've heard something like that. This is this, um, something that we heard, have heard in the Illinois waterway and the waterways leading to the Great Lakes to prevent, uh, in, in the past it's been Asian carp, but any number of invasive species. And, and invasive species are certainly a very big issue, but there are ways to control that migration without closing the waterway. And I think what has happened here on Lake Champlain is that the environmental groups are very focused on the environment as they should, that's their role, but haven't given a whole lot to the thought of what closing that lock actually means for navigation. Um, so there have been efforts to kind of educate them a little bit on that. And, and they assured, uh, they, they assured the, some of the constituents that were reaching out to them that their plan, the environmental group, doesn't want to prevent navigation. That's not their mission. Their mission is to prevent this invasive species. So they don't seem to have thought about the other ways to handle this or the ways that closing the lock could impact boats. Things about like perhaps the boats could be pulled out and moved around the lock. That might work for kayaks and canoes and, you know, small runabouts that get pulled out and put on a trailer, but that really doesn't work for looping boats. In other areas of the country, the Corps of Engineers has been successful in stopping invasive species migration 
with all kinds of techniques and they're installing some of these on the Illinois waterway now, but things like um, bubble curtains, um, sound barriers that the fish don't like particular sounds that they can, can generate. So there's all kinds of other strategies besides physically closing the waterway. So we've worked to bring that to their attention. The current status, um, uh, kind of a, a little news release went out from the Department of Environmental Conservation in New York. Um, and they are working on evaluating the economic and ecological impact of the migration of the round goby. Uh, they say that they will bring all stakeholders into the process once they study this to really figure out the economic and ecological impact. So obviously we'll be following that if you're not familiar with the area, the Champlain Canal is not critical to the Great Loop, but it is a popular route for many. It's one of the route choices you can take. A lot of boats will turn into the Erie Canal and take that to um, the Oswego Canal to Lake Ontario. If that's the route you're going, that does not involve this area we're talking about of the Champlain Canal. But some loopers who have a, a lower air draft and can clear 17 feet or so go up the Champlain Canal. So that's the route that would be closed off. And of course, there are uh, fears about if one lock gets closed this year on the Champlain route, what's to stop another lock from being closed on the Erie Canal route? And loopers need the New York State canals, uh, whether it's the Erie, Lake Champlain, the Champlain Canal, or a combination. We need them for through navigation. So it's really a critical issue for the Great Loop is making sure those New York State canals stay open. Okay, well, that was a good overview of New York, and we've got that under our belt as well as Florida. Uh, but I hear there's some good news about the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway. Yes, there is. There has been a lot of talk in the past several months about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, or IIJA. That, of course, is a lot of the stimulus type spending that's been associated with the, getting the economy back on tra track and getting some jobs back post pandemic. Um, so the good news is that a lot of money has been put towards dredging. The Corps of Engineers has obtained um, it's a total of, I think, $22 million over and above their normal dredging budget. And that's coming from that Infra Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. So uh, $5 million additional over and above budget is going to Florida. A little over $12 million is going to South Carolina, $4.5 million to North Carolina, and the really good news, and this is a little aside from the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway, but the New Jersey Intracoastal Waterway, which regularly, you know, in normal federal budget gets about $1.5 million for dredging, obtained uh, over $14 million. So um, from $1.5 on a normal year to over $14 million for New Jersey. And many loopers know New Jersey is one of those places that many loopers go on the outside because navigating the New Jersey Intracoastal Waterway can be really a challenge. So that $14 million should, should do some uh, good towards changing that parameter on, on the New Jersey Intracoastal Waterway and hope it'll be more navigable for boats the size of most looper boats in the near future. Well, that's good news as well, all that money that's coming in to improve the waterways. Um, speaking of the advocacy efforts that we do, uh, our funds don't come from our dues. So why, why do you not need to use dues to support the advocacy efforts? You know, that, that's been a tough choice. And when a AGLCA didn't used to be very active in advocacy, and that's because we never want to be a political association and advocacy by nature tends to involve 
petitioning the states for different needs. But when the anchoring situation was happening in Florida, we really decided it was time to jump in to that, to lend our support to the other voting organizations that were fighting the fight there. Uh, but because of that, it was a little bit controversial at that time, and we didn't want to put in a dues increase to fund it. Uh, we instead wanted to make it an option for members and not just force all of the members to fund it, but let people choose to contribute to the advocacy fund. You know, even in Florida, at the, the height of the anchoring debates, not all AGLCA members were on the same side. There were some who were waterfront property owners in Florida who could kind of see the point of others. Even though they were boaters, they, they didn't necessarily think that boats should be allowed to be anchored indefinitely. And, and that's a good point. Um, so we've always made it optional. And that's, you know, that's how we choose to continue to do it today. We don't want to put in an across-the-board membership dues increase to fund this because we know people just have different opinions on different issues. That said, AGLCA has grown substantially since we partnered with Marine Trawler Owners Association, Seven Seas Cruising Association, and the Fever Cruisers to form this coalition. And the way we fund the budget for that coalition uh, is based on the number of members each group has. So our share, AGLCA's share of that is substantial. It's over 50% of the overall budget. So but we've got more members and that makes sense. We just need to really encourage members to support these efforts if you wanna make sure that the waterways remain open. And in Florida, you know, it's an issue that some boaters don't anchor a lot and really don't find this an engaging issue for them. And that is perfectly fine. And that's why we don't do it through membership dues. But in New York, uh, if the New York state canals were to cease to operate to the standard that loopers can use them for through navigation, the loop becomes impossible. So all loopers should care about that and should be engaged about that. And the budget goes primarily to fund the lobbyist in Florida because that is the most active state and where we really need the most assistance. But it also, if we can exceed our goal, then it goes to fund things like participation in the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association. AGLCA is a member of that association, but they are the ones who are really advocating at the federal level to ensure funding for dredging of the waterways. So we are very fortunate to have a partner uh, that is key in that and it is in DC all the time meeting with legislators to make sure that the waterway gets dredged and, and we're reaping the benefits of that. Uh, if, our, if we can reach our goal and exceed our budget, we can have even a little bit more um, activity in that. If we can exceed the budget, it will go to things like the American Boating Congress, which we are also members of the National Marine Manufacturing Association, and they put on the American Boating Congress in Washington, D.C. every year. I have attended a few times when uh, we had the budget to do it, and it fit my schedule, and they set up meetings with state representatives and senators to meet with them or their staff and let them know why boating is important and what the issues are for boaters. So those are all the kinds of things that this advocacy effort to raise the funds, that's what it goes towards. So, you know, again, for those of you who are contemplating doing the loop or who are just local boating and want to make sure that the waterways remain open for boaters and the loop remains doable, the advocacy effort is really important. And that's, that's why we've become active in it instead of sitting on the sidelines. 
And speaking of that, we do have the annual fundraiser that's going on. And you alluded to that AGLCA has a rather, carries 50% of the fundraising goal. So what is the goal for this year? The goal for this year for AGLCA is $20,000. So uh, I think we are actually at this point, based on our member numbers, close to 60% of the overall fund. It's somewhere between the 50 and 60, but I think it's approaching the 60%. So it's a pretty lofty goal. Last year, our goal was slightly less than that, and we did meet it. We have found, though, that it's much easier to raise these funds when there's a really active discussion going on. You know, for example, in I believe it was 2020 when Georgia had already passed a very unfriendly to boaters anchoring law where you had to get a permit to anchor for even one night. That inspired people to be active in the process and it inspired a lot of contributions. In 2021, when there were still uh, several bills were filed in Florida to add to anchoring restriction areas like the four I mentioned that would be closed completely to overnight anchoring, and that got people engaged. So I do have some concerns that in a year where we've worked really hard in the past and some of those problems have been solved through time limits, you know, a compromise that is a time limit on how long you can anchor, which is great for cruisers like loopers because we don't stay in any place that long. So so I, I just fear that our success in the past is going to lead to a little bit of a harder time fundraising because the impression is that we don't have to be as vigilant in watching these issues. And lobbyists do cost money. Ours has been extremely effective. And he charges the same whether there's an issue or not because he's still building those relationships with the powers that be and he's still monitoring everything and working on our behalf. So. Um, we're about halfway to our goal right now. Our total as of this morning is $10,400 raised. And as I said, the goal for AGLCA is 20000 Okay. And where does the money go towards? You kind of alluded to that too, but just give our further explanation on that. Yeah. So the non-discretionary, we're committed to it. The contract is in place is the contract for our lobbyist that represents the coalition. And again, AGLCA has about 60% of the responsibility for that bill based on our number of members compared to the other three organizations involved. After that, if there's money left, we use that for travel expenses to participate in conferences like the American Boating Congress in Washington, D.C. in May uh, to put out alerts to members. You know, we can usually do that staff wise with without cost. And then anything that if we are fortunate to exceed our goal and have money left over, we just roll it over for the next year. These funds are held completely separately from general dues and other income for AGLCA. So being getting over that goal is, is would be a great start for next year because we do anticipate this being an annual event. Mm-hmm. Well, for those that haven't contributed, how can they do so now? Very easy. Just go to greatloop.org slash advocacy. It's greatloop.org slash advocacy. And if you are a member, your address should already be saved in there. If not, you don't have to be a member to contribute. You just basically, same as any other online purchase, you put in your name and address and your credit card information, and you can contribute to the fund that way. It does not have to be a large amount. Small amounts are perfectly fine. We'll take whatever anyone is willing to contribute to help with the effort. Okay, well, I think we've uh, covered any everything. Is there anything else we've left out that needs to be discussed? No, nope, I definitely think that covers it. And just, you know, remember, we do this on behalf of all voters, not just our members. But if you're an AGLCA member or a concerned voter, uh, again, greatloop.org slash advocacy, and you can contribute to the fund there. So 
Karen, thanks for joining me today. It's been a pleasure seeing you again. You're welcome. And thanks to everyone who's joined us on YouTube or their favorite podcast app. We look forward to seeing you again next week. We'll be back then with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising. Schwartz and Company Yacht Sales is a boutique yacht sales organization and a proud supporter of AGLCA, loopers, and adventurous souls throughout the Great Lakes. We are the exclusive representative for American Tug throughout the Great Lakes region, including the Canadian provinces of Ontario and Quebec. We are very active in the yacht brokerage market on both the buy side and sell side, providing our guidance and resources to valued customers. We also work with shipbuilders both in the U.S. and abroad to bring our customers' unique dreams to life. We welcome the opportunity to earn your business.